All right, here we are. Another day, another backstage podcast introduction, recording this whilst there's a little bit of quiet time uh, between sound checks and, and doors. We're here in Sheffield today at the Foundry venue with uh, Punk Rock Factory, Adam and the Metal Hawks, and myself DJing. Uh, the fourth show of the tour, three down, ten to go. So far, the shows have been amazing, and it's just been so much fun every night, donning silly costumes, playing silly music, and uh, just, well, being silly, really. And it's funny to me. I had a conversation before I set off on this tour. I was chatting to a guy about um, my quote-unquote brand and trying to look at ways in, in making the podcast bigger and grow my online following and all these different things and, you know, moving to TikTok and YouTube and all these new visual forms. So I say new, obviously, you know, YouTube's been around ages. That's how behind the curve I am. But I, I'm definitely trying to make inroads in those lanes because I realize that as much as I love the audio format that podcasts present um, in order to keep up and indeed progress, you have to adapt with the time. So I was chatting to this guy and he was saying, you know, Matt, the thing with you is you do too much and it's hard sometimes for people to get a grasp on what it is you're all about. And for me, I never really looked at it like that because there's two things really in this life that I love more than anything and they feed into the two kind of complementary lanes of my quote-unquote career. One of those is having in-depth intellectual, emotional conversations, which is what the podcast does. And then the other is you know, wearing silly costumes and having fun on stage, which is what the DJing allows me to do. And so for me, those two things hand-in-hand hand make sense. But as I sit here backstage, dressed as a sailor, about to go up and play yacht rock music in about 30 minutes' time, whilst also introducing a podcast which is just this really in-depth discussion with with this week's guest uh, writer and artist and filmmaker James Spooner and we get into so much heady topics from kind of commercialism and capitalism and the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement and gender politics and racial issues and all of these different things and I, I look at myself in the mirror dressed the way I am and think to myself, maybe my life is a bit weird, and I do try and do too much, but I enjoy it. And and what's been lovely on this tour has been meeting people who listen to the podcast and connect with the show. Uh, and there's not been loads, but in every city, and on the Sonic Boom 6 tour that I just did as well, there's been a few people every night who've come up to me and said, I love the show, great DJ set tonight. So there are people out there who like to hear thought-provoking conversations and also like to be silly and have fun as well i'm one of those people if you are welcome to the show and thank you for being here uh, and maybe you just want the intellectual conversations and if so then we have that covered here today um james has just launched a new exhibition uh, which is why we got him on the show and why i'm putting it out this week but um yeah this year marks 20 years since his debut feature film, which is a documentary called Afropunk, which is all about you know the interrelation of, of punk music and punk culture and, and the African-American experience. And so to celebrate the 20th anniversary of that film, he's just launched a new exhibition at the Punk Rock Museum in Las Vegas, which runs through to March of 2024. And it celebrates both his documentary and also the brand new release of an anthology of black punk authors, which is called Black Punk Now. And that is also the name of the exhibition at the Punk Rock Museum in Vegas. And I've seen loads of my friends out in Vegas at the moment for that When We Were Young festival. I'd definitely be getting a bit of FOMO and wishing I was out there. But thankfully, I've been having enough of a good time out here on tour. 
And I am about to go over to Miami uh, for my third consecutive flogging Molly cruise. So I can't complain. But yeah, lots of thoughts running through my mind as I sit here backstage dressed as a sailor in Sheffield right now. And um, I guess the main thing I wanted to share and express and convey is my gratitude to everybody who has been on the journey with me, particularly in regards to this podcast. Um, Seven years ago is when we launched. This is episode 302. And there's been so many wonderful conversations with so many great guests. And I'm very proud of of the back catalogue of work, which I now have with Life in the Stocks. And I've got so many great episodes and conversations with with really interesting and amazing guests coming up as well. Um, So if you're not already, please do get subscribed to the podcast wherever you get them. We're now on YouTube as well. And uh, if you're not already, please give me a follow on social media. And you can go, well, here's a podcast clip with Billy Corgan. And here's Matt dressed like Wayne from Wayne's World playing Bohemian Rhapsody. That's it. Anyway, that's it for me. I'm going to go and prepare for the show tonight. Um, We've got a few episodes coming out in succession over the next few days. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. Lots of great stuff coming up. But for now, please enjoy this episode 302 of Life in the Stocks with author, filmmaker and artist, James Spooner. And if you happen to find yourself in Las Vegas between now and March of next year, then do head on down to the Punk Rock Museum in Las Vegas and check out James's exhibition, uh, Black Punk Now, which is taking place for the next few months. Here we go. Okay, well, it was nice to see your face for all of two seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and we'll switch to the audio format from here on in. Maybe we'll jump back onto the camera at the end uh, to wrap things up. Um, so, dude, nice to meet you first and foremost. Um, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. And, uh, yeah, really excited to get into a myriad of, of different topics and and talking points with you. Um, I guess we should begin, if it's all right with you, going back 20 years now, which, which must seem wild. Um, so I did like a an article about a year and a half, two years ago for Metal Hammer. And it was like the 20 best punk documentaries. And I was kind of going through all the different ones. You know, obviously the, the research was to watch them all, which was a lot of fun. Um, I included your film on the list. So I'd seen it already and, and re-watching it again ahead of, of today's chat. I guess so many things are different now as opposed to when you made the film. What I'd love to sort of start out by talking about is the the most notable differences, developments, things that you've seen um, from the moment you made the film to where we're at now culturally, but I guess also technologically as well, because when you made that film, Afropunk, social media uh, was not a thing. Obviously, the internet was in its very early stages and so to track down all of these people um must have been its own you know adventure in and of itself and there wasn't that infrastructure back then uh, and communities that now exist online and ways in which you can quote unquote find your tribe quite as easily so yeah i guess first of all the, the kind of research development 
and then going into the filming of the project itself, how did you go about finding all of these people and documenting their stories? Yeah, no, those are all good questions. Um, so the film came out in 2003, but I started making it in 2001. So um, yeah, I, this was the time I didn't even have, I didn't have a computer. I didn't even have an email address when I started the project. So um, it's hard to even imagine that something, <laughs> that people could exist like that, you know? But um, I had no need for any of that kind of stuff. Um, so part of making this film was just like buying a computer, you know? <laughs> I love and, it. That, that's how old school we're talking, which must blow young people's minds now. Like, what? You didn't have yeah. one already in your pocket? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I did, I remember, you know, and this is kind of like granular, but, you know, I remember talking to somebody who knew about tech and stuff and I was like, yeah, I have this idea for making a movie. Um, like I need something where I can like search the internet and like edit a movie. <laughs> and, and he was like, okay, those are like two drastically different things you know mm. and really you have to buy you know the whatever the latest apple was you know i think it was a g4 right yeah i remember that uh, tower Cla right classic so, model yeah so yeah yeah so i bought you know i i, I maxed out my credit card bought this like two thousand dollar you know tower i still had to buy a monitor you know all of the stuff you know i had to get like the internet which um, I was living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn at the time, and like DSL didn't exist yet. You know, for, for those who are not old enough like to know, like we had dial-up, which you probably heard of, but then the, the faster internet was DSL, you know? And I didn't, the, the whole city didn't have it yet, you know? So... Going to your question, like, how did I find people, you know, like, I remember when Google came out, you know, so I was like on Ask Jeeves before that, you know, like, somebody in Texas was like, oh, Black Stacy, you know, and I was like, is there a White Stacy? No, we, you know, it's like, um, so, you know, so it was really just like people calling out the Black people in their, in their scene, and then me like, sending them an email telling them what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, that combined with like, who are, who are bands that have black membership and then trying to track those people down, you know? How, so how old there's are you, a lot James? of like, I'm 47. So you're 10 years older than me. So, and I was reading, you kind of grew up between both LA and, and uh, New York. So you kind of, I guess, had a bit of a grasp on both the East and the West coast scene. So, you well, are... to, I mean, to a degree, I, 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 you know, I got into punk in a small town in Southern California, which is like what my graphic novel, The High Desert, is about. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, but that was really like, we didn't have, it was such a small town. We didn't have a scene. We didn't have shows like um, there, there wasn't like access, you know. Um, a couple of years later, I moved to New York and then I, you know, so I, like, that's where I was like, rooted. And, you know, so right when I started the project, I was like, oh, okay, I got to talk to like, 
you know, Ryan from Bushmon and Lukeman from Funkface and Chaka from Burn and, you know, like, uh, you know, like, you know, just the random, oh, yeah, there's like, there's a black dude in Chromags now. Like, I don't like, who's that guy? I need to find him, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, like Todd, he, he, the, the one of the, not Todd Youth, but the, the other Todd from Warzone. Like he's black, you know, I remember him from Washington Square Park, you know, like that kind of thing, like really just kind of going through my memory, memories and being like, oh, wasn't there like a black guy in, in Worlds Collide? And, you know, like that kind of thing. And and then trying to find these people um, again was like, do they have an email address? You know, like, you know it was definitely uh, its own, you know, chore. Yeah, I'll bet. And and so from a a scene point of view at that time, like especially in New York, um, you know, what's your memories of, of that particular geographical punk scene at the time you were around in terms of the bands who were around, the bands who were big, and also I guess just the overriding vibe, because New York obviously went through so many different well, I think what's crazy to me is pre again internet social media times scenes would flip so quick and and you you know in the space of two years you'd have such radically different audience members and bands and everything would move so fast what kind of time period are we talking where you're entrenched in that new york scene and 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 who are the bands that are kind of leading it at that point and yeah like i said what's the overall vibe is it like a violent time is it a positive time is is the veganism and and those kind of politics there when you're around? Did you miss that, or did it come later? What was going on? Sure. Well, um, I moved to to New York in 1991, and um, so I missed the kind of like CB's matinee um, era. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I saw. I think I. I mean, I, I saw the the lat the first last gorilla biscuit show right Does that makes sense like yeah, 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 <laughs> when they yeah. when they first were like we're not playing anymore um so i was at that show you know like i saw burn you know like kind of like the second generation of those revelation records bands like some of that stuff um but you have to remember that new york is so huge that i, I counted a few months back like there were something like 28 places to play under like below 14th street in Manhattan, you know? So with all of those options came like wildly different scenes, you know? So, so if you were like a street punk and you were into like the casualties or something, right. Who was just getting started around then, like you didn't have to go see uh, sick of it all, or, you know, you didn't have to go to, uh, you know, see the, I don't know, like the selector when they came to town or whatever, you know, like you didn't have to, you didn't have to participate in, in things like when you're like from a smaller place, you kind of like, you get these shows where it's like a ska band and then like a hardcore band and then like a metalcore band. Like, it's like all kinds of stuff. Right. Um, so, and I was somebody who, like, when I moved to New York, I was like a Mohawk punk, 
I was looking for that kind of stuff. And I came across a fairly unknown um, all black punk band called Bushmon that really just like blew my mind, like just really opened the the idea that like, you know, this is they they were an example to me of like how you could be a black punk, you know, um, like in the flesh. It wasn't like, you know, Bad Brains or Fishbone, these bands that you can't, you know, actually touch. Right. Um, and. You know, and within them, there were these or within their scene, there was like um, a lot of different kinds of like ska bands and. Uh, you know, there's just like a lot of bands that are kind of unknown. I could rattle off names and most people, unless you were there, wouldn't know these, these bands. They didn't really record that much or, you know, but um, then I started kind of getting into hardcore more. And, um, and that was that was more of a New York tough guy, like wannabe DMS kind of um that was like a kind of local gang or whatever, like just a lot of meatheads, you know? Yeah. 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 And, um, and not very, not very like political. It was more just like tough posturing and stuff. And that didn't really appeal to me very much. Eventually I, I started getting into politics and, uh, the music that I was liking, like they would, maybe play at ABC No Rio, which is like a squat in the East, Lower East Side. Um, but if, uh, but they didn't come to New York that much. And something that a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to new, the New York scene is that like, there are all these huge bands that came out of New York, but then there are all these bands that were, that never played New York. You know, like if you were from New Jersey, you might never play New York. You know, it was like very closed off. So and touring bands would often go from New Jersey and then go to Long Island or Connecticut. So they, they're not dealing with New York at all. Um, yeah, it's, so, a to it's a totally different genre and scene altogether. But there's the Great Twisted Sister documentary and it shows how. Oh, yeah how they for like 20 years or something crazy before they even got signed and would not, as you say, go into New York. Cause they'd have, were they long Island? Where were they? They had a specific region. They were long Island. Yeah. And they were just not, a, they, they couldn't break into the scene. And that was the thing is like New York outside of ABC, no Rio or like C squat. Like they, these places, most of the places, the 28 places that I mentioned, they all have bookers, you know, and those bookers have relationships and they're like, you know, there's like capitalism at the end of the day, you're like trying to sell beer, you know, like it's, it's a whole different yeah. world. So, um, th there's not a lot of DIY, you know, at the time. So I started going out of the city so that I could see these more political bands. And this is kind of like my heyday, which is kind of like the, you know, maybe first, first, maybe second generation emo. Right. So it's like this, like, the screamy political bands like uh, Frail and Chokehold and, you know, I don't know, Policy of Three or, you know, that all the West Coast stuff like Struggle and, and Downcast and Heroin, like these are all kind of like uh, 
you know, the ebullition records, the gravity records, blood link records, like all that stuff um, is where I kind of really came into my own and like started doing zines, started putting on shows, started like, you know, my own record label, just like really uh, entrenching myself in what, to me, what punk rock is really all about, which is like DIY, you know? Let me ask you this, James. Is there a good documentary about that time period, scene, community, record labels, or those bands you just listed? I'm not aware of one, but is there? And if there isn't, it sounds to me like you're the guy who should be doing one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I feel like the story of those bands is just starting to be told. Um, Like, you know, that that record label, uh, Numero Group, um, they they've been repressing all of that stuff and really kind of shining a light on bands like Indian summer and, uh, current, um, boiler maker. Like they're putting out like these really beautiful box sets, um, not native nod. Like they're, they're putting out all of these really beautiful, uh, kind of collector's editions of this kind of lost music, you know? Um, so, I know there's a there's a documentary about the San Diego scene from that time. Uh, I can't remember what it's called right now, but um, yeah, would, I think that would you would you, know, you, do, would you would... do another documentary or because I I've made one and I know how time consuming they can be and and how emotionally draining they can be. Um, and I know you do several other things as well. You mentioned obviously the graphic novel. You're a tattoo artist. Um, you made a feature film. There's there's plenty of other things you've done. Would you ever return to the medium that you sort of, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, sort of made made your name in? Is that something that appeals to you, or do you feel like you've you've done it and and there's much more, you know, other um, I mean, artistic I, mediums? Out I, there I don't have a yeah, I don't have like a strong desire to do it. Um, I think that uh, you know, I'm really interested in telling stories about people of color. And, um, you know, so unless I was like, you know, there, if, if there was like some world where like, I don't know, like, you know, I'm trying to think of who I would want, like, maybe I would, I would be interested in see, I really want to see a documentary about, uh, Martine from Los Crudos and Limpress, you know? Mm. So like, I want that to exist. Like that would be something that in the right world I might consider. But like, you know, I, right now I'm just kind of like interested in, in writing. So um, I'm trying to tell some of that story. Like I have a book deal now that I'm writing um, and I'm trying to tell some of that story, but you know, it's, it's through my like pointed perspective. So um you know it's definitely not going to be like a uh, uh a history lesson or a who's who of like you know proto screamo or whatever you know yeah yeah well it's you know you've got your upcoming tours at the punk rock museum to get into the history of all that stuff um what is can you tell me anything about the book and the subject matter and where you're headed with that or well, is it far too early in the game Oh no. So yeah, I mean, basically I'm, I'm writing a, uh, writing about my, 
the events that led me to make Afropunk and then my experience with like building Afropunk as a community and then it being like kind of like swept up and and you know I don't want to sound like a victim but like you know taken from me because I got caught up in like capitalism I got caught up in like you know trying to grow a community and at the same time like accidentally built a brand you know um and uh you know so it's kind of like the the pitfalls of like how the mainstream gobbles up the underground you know well it's very difficult to keep your nose clean when you get any form of success uh in in an artistic world um i think because especially you know diy underground stuff in particular the moment that becomes a commodity it's almost in kind of you know direct confliction of the original ideals at the core of the thing um but but then the flip side to that is that you want to get these ideas and these ex- forms of expression and, and and artists and voices you want to get them seen and heard by as many people as possible it's a really hard line to walk isn't it and to keep your integrity and stay true to the you know the original intent um whilst also you know financially existing um yeah I mean, all of those, all of those issues, all of those things are issues, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's to like kind of reiterate what you're saying or expand on it. It is that thing of like, uh, I have this great message. I want to, I want as many people as possible to hear it, but I'm in the underground. And in order to reach more people, I need to like stick my head out of the underground and hope it doesn't get chopped off, you know? And it, it it really, I don't know exactly what the answer is, but um, it seems like, you know, there is some kind of line. There is some kind of division between the mainstream and the underground. And I can confidently say that, like, one, when, for me, when, when, a person, a band, an artist, whatever, like crosses that line. Uh, I don't think that they're punk anymore. Mm. Um, I, I'm not the de- I'm not the decider of where that line is, you know. But I think that for those of us who have spent time uh, existing in the underground, like we're pretty, it's pretty clear. Like we can point to a particular band or a particular album or whatever and be like oh that's when they cross the line you know um so you know i i guess i try not to have any uh like i try to be honest with myself like i'm writing about punk i'm writing about diy i'm writing about the underground but i'm also doing it for mainstream publishers so like let's not pretend that this is like a punk book, you know, it's like a book about punk, you know, and I think that if we can be honest with ourselves as artists, then it becomes less convoluted. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's off topic ever so slightly, uh, but it's something that's just popped into my head and it you know, isn't punk in the traditional sense. But I mean, I think the dude is about as punk as it gets, but I would love to get your thoughts on Eminem. 
the well, line goes so, the line goes well, dead. <laughs> no, no. Um I mean I haven't thought about Eminem in years, but uh so the two things that come up right away is like I think when I was when I was younger, I like really had this like, you know, fuck that dude, like kind of, you know, you know, kind of equating him to Elvis type thing. Uh Um, But I can't, I can't deny that he is a like great lyricist. And the thing that kind of turned my head around about like how I felt about him was when I actually listened to his lyrics, I was like, oh, he's not like talking about black stuff. He's not like posturing and trying to, he's talking about like white trash stuff, you know, yeah. like, yeah. like I felt that, you know, I was like, oh, there's a certain authenticity to him that uh, I wasn't mad about, you know, coupled with his talent. It wasn't like he's just like some nepotistic star, you know? So you know, I definitely can hear the argument about like there are people being better than him, like people who like didn't get on that should have, or all of that kind of him be being the only rapper who gets to be on rock radio. Like all those kind of conversations are authentic and real. And also, he's like talented, and he's you know talking about you know real white guy stuff. Also, I take like I really am trying to remove the adjective punk, the stuff that's not punk, because what it does is like suggest that there is no there was no rebellion in arts before punk, you know, and the fact of the matter is that like there there is um there is like rebellious even diy hip-hop there is you know there was rebellious diy uh jazz you know years before punk was even an idea before rock and roll was even an idea you know so um you know and like when i learn about like the history of techno i'm like those guys are doing the exact same things that punk rockers were doing like in terms of like making their own product you know making these like records that only press to a thousand that only a few people care about you know like doing uh underground shows like all of this stuff but they're not punk you know and to call them punk kind of diminishes it's like oh well we need to we need to filter it through this this um white rock and roll lens you know and it really makes me feel like, you know, like, you know, who's like punker than punk is like, I don't know, like Betty Davis or, you know, uh, Sly, you know, Sly Stone or whatever. But like, let's not call them punk. Like they are R&B artists and, and R&B artists are also allowed to be wild and rebellious. You know, you know what I'm saying? I hear what you're saying. There's a certain level of of purism there, which I can get down with. I want to ask you this, though, to maybe throw a wild card into the mix. Is Little Richard punk? No, he's 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 a rock and roll. He's R&B. And I think, again, it's like when you start 
calling things punk that aren't punk, it, it does a disservice to both punk and to the the uh, genre that it's like that you're you're taking something from it. You're saying that like if Little Richard is punk, then that what that tells me is that like your vision of of uh, R and B or soul music or, or or rock and roll music, depending on what song you're talking about or whatever is that it it has to be this one way maybe they only do love songs or something you know like they only do uh safe stuff whatever and it's like nah like if you look at the history of music people were always wild you know like there's always that element so like let's give let's give praise where praise is due you know like the Sex Pistols didn't invent chaos in music, you know? No, they did popularize safety pins through the facial parts, though, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> we, could give, we could give them that, 100%. And gobbing. I guess the reason I asked that is because, for me, there's nothing more punk than being, like, a black, gay, cross-dressing, flamboyant, over-the-top, wild, wild entertainer in the deep south of america in the 1950s um that and same thing with eminem like being you know as obnoxious and offensive and dangerous and out of control as his art was at that time and and so for me i think i've always looked at punk more and obviously everybody has their own interpretation of it obviously but for me it's more about an attitude than a sound or a style or a look it's more and i would about- i would agree with that i just i just you know, here's where I, where I start to come along with that, where I start to develop my feelings about it. Because at a certain point, like, you know, 15 years on into Afropunk, um, the festival, the brand, yeah. they were no longer supporting punk acts. Like, they didn't have any anything remotely uh, rock and roll or you know maybe one or two acts on the stage but it was mostly R&B you know and um but then so when when they would be questioned they would be like oh well punk is an attitude punk is an energy you know and also they go so far as to say that black people in America by sheer just by existing are are punk you know right and I, under, I understand the sentiment because, you know, in a lot of ways, Black people have had to be underground, have had to be DIY, you know, like have had to, you know, and all of these art forms that we're talking about all come from Black experiences, you know. So I get it. But also, you can't tell me that like, uh you know, some black dude at church or on the basketball team <laughs> is punk, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Just because they're black, you know, it, it starts to get way too like convoluted, even though those people, the guy at church may have more in common with punk in terms of like being ostracized, being the only person, you know, in his at his job that's into whatever you know whatever right like taking on the man in that way may have more in common to with them 
than the kid who got a Green Day shirt at Hot Topic and, you know, like is taken care of by his parents. You know what I'm saying? Like, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, it, so, so in order for me to just be like, have like a, a streamlined understanding, I'm like, yeah, let's just stop calling, uh, let's stop calling Eminem punk because he's a rapper and rappers are allowed to be obnoxious. You know, rappers are like, let's look at the history of, of hip hop and you're going to find some wild out there. I mean, look at African Bombada, you know what I'm saying? Like right at the beginning, right? Like wild out there stuff. Like, but to call him punk is to take something away from hip hop. You feel me? Yeah, man. Absolutely. So, God, there's so many things I want to ask you. So I had Chuck D on the show a couple of years back and he, he's got a great, um, a lot of people call him punk. Right. Uh, yeah, man. And he he actually narrated a whole series on the clash for Spotify. Um, so it's kind of that's weird. It's like it's Chuck D from Public Enemy narrating a documentary series about the clash, which is punk as fuck. But then it's on Spotify and you're like, ah, again, how do you exist without <laughs> without the commercial commodities of, you know, consuming the medium? But he talked a lot. I can't remember the name of his book. It's driving me mad. But he talked a lot in his book. It's all about the African-American experience. And he talked about how nothing is going to change until we get black voices in businesses and corporations and obviously in the media and in politics and the government and only then because it's let's be honest right we're all pushing against to different extents these pillars of power and unless the pillars of power change nothing really around it changes you just get you know your head turns from left to right and distractions are here there and everywhere and there's there's things to always be, be fighting about but until the actual core of the system can be you know, represented with more queer people and females and, you know, the whole cross section of society, then nothing's going to change. And so I feel like since your film was made um, 20 years ago, a lot from from me sitting over here from the UK, at least looking at America, and I'm just talking specifically about America here, because that's obviously, you know, where you live and, and, and that's that's your perspective. Where do you feel like the um, American government is at and that kind of post Obama world do you feel like the situation for african-american people growing up in america looking to get into politics specifically do you feel like there's more opportunity and, and you know um potential there after your country has now had a black president or do you feel like in many ways not a lot has changed mm. I know yeah a, i mean that was a big question that, that, <laughs> yeah and, it, and it's also like uh you know very 2008 question um you know because we've also had uh you know we've also had trump um of course and when and and biden you know so like yeah i i think that there is space um and interest and desire for black represent representation in politics um and i think of like a, a kind of a more important question is like uh, you know because black people aren't a monolith you know like we can't say that like um, you know um, I'm trying to think of some examples I don't know there there are like very progressive um, black 
politicians who, you know, are typically in like uh, kind of like the House of Representatives or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's like Kamala Harris, our vice president, who's just like, you know, pretty conservative, you know? Um, and, you know, I'm not somebody that believes that like black capitalism is the answer to white capitalism. You right. Know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that like once you get to a certain level of power or a certain level of uh, wealth, uh-huh. um, well, then you become entrenched in the thing you are. Everybody has the same ability to start being corrupt, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, well, let's be real, right? The root, game, the root right? of all evil, the so, root of all evil is capitalism. And I feel like in, in this world, in today's age, for me personally, that's my personal viewpoint. Is like, sure, sure. Like, yeah, I mean, it's like, like, let's not, you know, say like, oh, well, race doesn't matter or whatever. Like, all that stuff matters, but it's all connected um, to like capitalism and you know and economics and 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 wealth and like the ability to to gain wealth and whatever right so you know so i think that you know and i'm no expert on like uh you know governmental politics or whatever but i think that like yeah we want to see ourselves represented in all aspects of life you know we we you know it it to, to have like a progressive um, black senator or mayor or any of that, like they're going to be the people who like are more likely to look out, right? Um, but just because they're black doesn't mean they're going to look out. You know, it could actually mean quite the opposite. Um, so I think it's more a question of like, who has our best interest in mind. Um, and I think what, what, when I listen, when I hear what you, you know, you're re- recounting uh, Chuck D's statement, I start thinking about things like um, media and when they start uh, hiring people of color in the positions to green light TV shows or whatever, And we start seeing people of color telling like more nuanced stories, you know? Yeah. Um, And to go back to your very, very first question about like how things have changed, you know, when I was uh, in 2003, when Afropunk came out, there was exactly one black person in all of Hollywood who had the power to green light a, a movie, you know? And now there are there are lots, you know, like it's not like we like, you know, party's over. We 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 got it, you know, but it's like there are more opportunities. And a lot of that came from or came out of um, the uprisings around George Floyd. You know, um, it's like, oh, shoot, like we have to start hiring people of color to um to like balance out our workforce, you know? And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it takes murder and an uprising for people to like open their eyes and be like, oh, this is white privilege? I didn't really like that, you know? 
and, and male privilege as well, which obviously the Me Too movement highlighted massively. And I think as awful as the pandemic was, and I don't want to, you know, say anything too outrageous here, but so much good came from that time in relation to over over here in England, we had um, a female who basically disappeared because um, she was walking home one night and, and a policeman, I'm sure you heard this story, Sarah Everard, her name was a UK policeman, picked her up and, and said, you know, I'll, I'll take you home. And he ended up murdering her. Um, yeah. And so there was this huge, you know, like wave of protests led by women in the UK, peaceful protests. Um, yeah. And in obviously everything off the back of Rose McGowan's book and, and kind of Harvey Weinstein's downfall and, and all of that, you know, coinciding with the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd and, and all of that. I feel like, you know, the pandemic was a catalyst for a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah, because, well, we had time, you know, we were exact time, space, was and, for, yeah, yeah, everybody was pissed for one reason or another, you know, and these things were happened in, in, in a time where everyone was stoked to get outside, you know, so it's like, yo, let's like, we were able to mobilize huge numbers, um, you know, because of the moment, you know, and you know, I, I mean, I would love to believe that um, that every protest could could make that kind of uh, mark, you know, or shift the dial like that, you know. Um, you know, time will tell. Yeah, another thing I wanted to ask you about, um, I can't remember who mentioned this to me. It was somebody I interviewed. It wasn't Chuck. But somebody else fairly recently spoke about how rock stars and, and musicians and, and a lot of famous and, and certainly pop stars, a lot of these people in the music, mainstream music community now don't really use their platform to affect change. But actually what's happened a lot specifically in America is athletes have been leading the charge in recent times. Um, and I think that's amazing because when you think kind of traditionally and historically how conservative the sports world has been with a little c um and how you know people just kind of turn up do the job win the trophy or whatever but then there's been this wave in recent times of like no actually athletes are like saying this is not acceptable um and taking the knee and all that kind of stuff and i'd love to get your take on that as someone who's obviously you know from an artistic and, and musical kind of background but i'm not a fan of any sort of sport but i can respect the shit out of that and i'd be interested to hear your take and in the way athletes again kind of especially in america have led a lot of this kind of conscious awakening um when it comes to equality yeah i mean i i don't know that i can really say much more than you like i i I don't watch any sports yeah. uh, whatsoever. Classic um, punks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, I mean, I could, I can only venture a guess that, like, you know, we're dealing with a, a, a younger generation of mostly black people who, you know, are just willing to. Uh, to speak up, you know, I mean, yeah, I, it's like I said, I mean, it's like, I can kind of just talk to the, the general, my general feeling about like, about like where black people are, it, 
in our our society or whatever but i don't know anything about sports <laughs> so i'm <laughs> the wrong guy to, to talk about it i think one thing that's very alarming and you know awful um and confusing and just a whole bunch of things but where kind of like you know a lot of these heartland american to generalize and, and apologies for the generalization but you know that's often where strong feelings of, of racism reside right is in certain geographical pockets of the states and these people will cheer on their favorite sports stars who also happen to be of a certain color um on sports day but then the rest of the week they'll go back to like being prejudiced and bigoted and i find that misalignment one of the more um you know just for me mad things about the human ability to compartmentalize their thoughts and issues on things. yeah totally <laughs> you know i mean and, and that that goes back to just like you know black people are here to entertain us yes know? yeah and, which um, chuck chuck talks you know, a lot about that in his book as well it's like it's okay if you're a performer um or an entertainer or an athlete and that's kind of all all traditionally african-americans have been allowed to do um in any sort of successful way um which is yeah. fucked but has obviously yeah, totally. as, you, as yeah. you say obviously has changed loads since your film came out and in what was sort of interesting to me is you get two bands you mentioned them earlier fish fishbone and bad brains now in the wake of those two bands because every white musician i've spoken to from you know the 80s onwards who was around fishbone in la and around bad brains in dc and new york and all around there were all in awe of of those guys was there not a massive wave of young black kids picking up guitars after watching those bands or was it just that they weren't really in those scenes to begin with to see them and those guys were just playing to predominantly white audiences i think it was both um i think that uh you know i wouldn't call it a massive wave um but i think that what the what those bands did for um the black youth seeing them at the time was validate their experience uh, simply by existing by example you know like oh here is an amazing artist doing this thing um and uh that means i can be here too right um i think that the difference between the 80s 90s black punk and the black punk of today is that um and i'm kind of speaking generally so like don't crucify me but i'm feeling like uh there is a sense of like meet me where i am in black punks today you know like if you see a band like zulu or soul glow like two of the biggest bands in the scene today like they're so unapologetically black and seeing them live is like every white person in that room has to come to them you know yeah. it's yeah. like we're no longer going to uh worry about making you uncomfortable you know and so so when i grew up 
the energy that I got from a lot of black punks was like, let's not put the spotlight on me as a black person. And, um, and, and there are clear ex exceptions, but you know, like that's the energy. And, you know, if we're going to talk about race, it's going to be in terms of like unity that feels really like also feel safe and inclusive. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, but in the 20 years since Afropunk, I think the conversation has turned to, this is my experience. And, um, and I'm not even talking to you. Yeah. You can be here, you know, but if, you know, like I, and I, you know, you can be here. I want you here, but like, this isn't for you, you know? And so like when I go to a, a Zulu show and I see the t-shirts that say like, uh, what does it say? Something like end white hardcore or something like that. Um, you know, it's just kind of like, uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> you know, like, you don't know, say it's, or, you know, or like in between songs are playing like these kind of like current R and B songs. And like, uh, I don't know. There's just like a very kind of, like soul glow has like they just remind me of my cousins just like you know this is just um like elements of their show feel like being at a cookout or something and it's like you got to come to you got to come and meet me where i am and i don't know that afropunk like they saw afropunk and were like ding 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 but i think that you know there was a, a couple of punk generations happened in 20 years and like the the young black punks of today are more like um, more excited about telling our stories to other punks of color. You know, um, I see the same thing with uh, with um, queer bands and girl fronted bands. It's just like. Absolutely. Everybody's invited. Everybody's invited, but like you're coming to my experience, you know? I was going to say uh, exactly that. I've got a friend who was on the show. Um, she was in a band called Dream Nails. She, she's no longer in that band, but she started a new band fairly recently. But um, Dream Nails used to do this part in the show where they'd say girls to the front and they would kind of forcibly, not physically, but, you know, just over the mic would be like, guys, this is your time to get the fuck out of the mosh pit now and to go stand at the back of the room whilst all the women come down to the front unthreatened by any sort of male energy and just let loose and express themselves girls to the front girls to the front and being in the room as a man in those moments i found completely invigorating and inspiring and i felt uncomfortable i felt uncomfortable as fuck but i lived for it and i loved it because as you say it's like you're allowed to be here i ain't telling you to leave but what i'm not doing anymore is pandering to your experience because this is ours watch it and learn yeah. and, by all means and let you know, and the thing that, uh, you know, using that example is like, you know, 25 years ago, Kathleen Hanna was crucified for that, for those exact same words, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, I remember uh, a band from the 90s called Team Thresh, one of my favorite bands. And right, nice. they, uh, yeah, they're uh, all uh, all lesbians. Um, their band, their their album Personal Best is like, like amazing still to this day top tier and they used to um do shows that were 
uh, it was like $3 for girls, $7 for boys. They would have like early, uh, they would, they would have women's self-defense classes. Um, if you, you know, you come an hour before the show and they would like teach for women's self-defense, you know, and like men were freaking out, not men, mm-hmm. boys, like teenage boys were freaking out, you know? And I remember like I was 17 and I was like, this is amazing. You know, like I'm listening to these lyrics about like lesbian love stories and like, clearly this is not for me, you know, like they're not writing these songs for me in my experience, you know, but I'm not threatened by that, you know, like I can, I can enjoy it or like going to Los Crudos and them singing in Spanish. It's like, yeah, this band rules. It, It doesn't like it's, but it's not for me. Like clearly they're not even singing in my language, you know? So people just have to kind of, especially white guys, like just have to realize that the whole world isn't about them. And that's something that takes, you know, that that's generational work, you know, like that's work that we have will, you know, a lot of white guys are just starting to realize, you know, and I think that's the power or that's a powerful thing that happened with Afropunk was I knew white people would see it. I'm talking about the documentary. I knew white people would see it, but I was very, very specific, uh, or, or uh, I was very, very like uh, intentional about making this a black conversation. So, what it feels like to the white viewer is like something they've never experienced because they've never been in a room when black people are talking, when white people aren't there you know what i'm saying um yeah and i yeah. had that experience i had that experience as a teenager um i remember i'll never forget going to uh, i was like at some kind of like anarchist bookstore or something and uh what i didn't realize when i went in was that there was like a women's only space happening and i kind of like walked up to it and quickly understood what was happening um and i was just so curious so i like sat down and just kind of hid myself and like listened in and i was like oh this is what this is why women excuse me um this is what women talk about when men aren't around and i understand the value because there were so many points where i wanted to like interject and be like hey wait about it what about that you know like and without me there they could just keep the conversation going you know um so you know, for white guys where the whole world revolves around them, including hardcore, where it's just like about white guy problems, you know, getting stabbed in the back or whatever, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, man, is it refreshing to hear a woman's perspective or like a, you know, an Indian person's perspective or queer person's like, fuck, man, this, this generation of punk rock is so exciting to me because of the amount of voices, you know, the diversity of the voices. Yeah, and the rules are gone as well. I think traditionally there was always these certain rules with with kind of the stories you were allowed to tell um, and, as you say, the kind of types of people who could tell them. And now it's sort of like the gloves are off, isn't it? It's awesome. Yeah, and, you know, when you, it's like, and I think about like the 90s and I think about like, Every band was talking about, you know, police brutality or, uh, 
you know, the war in Iraq or whatever, you know, and it's like most of these kids like have never had to deal with the police outside of maybe getting a ticket, you know, yeah. have never, it would never be in, a, in, a, in an economic situation where they would have to go enlist in the army and go to war, you know, like these aren't firsthand experiences and like Bravo for telling, for, you know, taking on those issues. I wouldn't necessarily know about some of this stuff. Some of these politics, if it wasn't for, I don't know, like, you know, crass or whatever. Right. But like when you speak from experience, it's just like so much more powerful, you know? Well, it's all about truth. Not right? to shout out Crass. I, I, I love Crass. So not to, uh, I was just thinking about political bands. No, it's <laughs> yeah. all good. I've had Penny on the show. I've been down to Dial House where he still lives and yeah, soaked up the vibes down there. Very cool place, man. Very cool energy. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, going, I won't, I won't say this because I now know your feelings, but John Lennon, you know, those elements of his songwriting that was slight verging on punk, let's say. And, uh, you know, one of his most famous phrases is just give me some truth. And like, for me, that's the core of what punk songwriting is all about. Is yeah. Like, Tell me your truth. Totally, totally. And, you know, I mean, and that's I think that's the difference between uh, John Lennon, the the um, the man who he was before he died and the pop star that he was, you know, when he started or whatever. It's like you know, all of those dudes grew, obviously, but, um, you know, it's like more like, yo, I'm not afraid to say anything anymore, you know? Um, and some of that comes from power, you know, I think when you get to a certain place, you can just say what the fuck you want. Yeah, but, right. um, you know, I think that a lot of punks start from that place, um, because there's nothing to lose really. Like I'm already in the underground playing to like, you know, 200 people with a seven inch, like <laughs> you're not going to, you're going to take that from me, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I guess conversely, when you have scaled the heights and you are the most successful artist in the world at that time to then go and say bold, crazy, you know, out there shit is mm -hmm. you've got everything to lose then, although you've got your position yeah, of power, power for your money. With, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> they can never take that. <laughs> so um yeah like go on go ahead i was gonna say uh you know john lennon could have never made another song and he'd be totally fine yeah <laughs> well it just it, for me now whenever I, I it's not this but in the in this context it is this whenever i think about john lennon my head immediately goes to imagine and then it immediately goes to that god awful video that the celebrities made during the pandemic tying everything all our conversations together all singing from their mansions about how we should imagine a world with no possessions and it's like well it's all well and good you've been you know locked down in your condo with the pool and the view of the hollywood hills what about me yeah. being locked down in my one bedroom apartment with no garden or windows <laughs> yeah no dude That's it's been really it's been really uh, engaging and, um, and and wonderful chatting to you as I sort of knew it would be. And uh, um, uh, yeah, when Melanie sort of suggested having you on, I was like, yeah, hell yeah. Um, and like I said, I'd seen your film a few years back whilst writing this article that I'd done and, and really enjoyed it then. And um, 
yeah, look forward to the book, man. Obviously, I know how long they take because I've written two myself. So um, how far along the line are you? Is there a release date sort of set in stone yet or a rough timeline? Well, I should like, you know, uh, shout out. So I have a book called Black Punk Now that I co-edited with uh, my friend Chris Terry. That is an anthology of black punk writers. Um, and it, it's fiction, nonfiction comics. I mean, it goes from like sci-fi to horror to uh, comedy, like all, all across the spectrum, interviews, uh, like I said, comics. Uh, that comes out October 31st. Oh, nice. And yeah, so that's like just about to drop and, um, you know, available wherever you buy books. Um, and, uh, and then, then that goes in, in conjunction with the Black Punk Now exhibit that I'm doing at the, the Punk Rock Museum. Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, and if for all of your listeners who will be in Las Vegas in the next six months, um, go check out the Punk Rock Museum and you can see the, the exhibit. Um, that's like photos of the early afropunk days and um you know ephemera from that time as well as um photos from the black and brown punk festivals that are happening today uh including decolonize which is based in london um and then um the the book that i was talking about earlier which is like uh going to be a hybrid of prose and comics um you know it's do you do all the illustration I, yourself obviously being an artist is yeah that, oh nice right yeah so so my book the high desert uh so that book is like uh that's been out for a year it's all about my first experiences in in punk uh growing up in the desert as a black kid in a town filled with nazis um <laughs> that's like straight graphic novel 365 pages it's like a brick you know Amazing. And uh, it's all just, uh, I, I wrote and illustrated the whole thing. The book that I was talking about earlier that kind of talks about leading up to Afropunk and stuff, that um, is scheduled to be come out in 2025. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm writing it now. It's, it's a combination of, of prose and comics. So it'll, it kind of like, has some illustrations and then it has like you know flyers and you know it's it's more of it's it's a hybrid you know um yeah so oh, sounds like you got your work cut out man stuff. love it yeah yeah lots of stuff I, I try to keep busy and you've got your tours coming up as well um which sounds super exciting i think the great thing about all of these tours that they're doing is everybody's um relationship to punk and ideas on punk as we've sort of you know proven today and and everybody's take is slightly different and personal to them and i think you could go on every tour that you know is taking place from the moment they started for as long as they go and every single one would be different wouldn't it um that, that, yeah I yeah that's the I mean, beautiful the, thing about it that is the beautiful thing and the, the thing i was you know what you know i want to just give a shout out to the like the 10 or so black and brown um, punk festivals that are happening these days. Um, 
because you know they're really picking up where I left off or sold out in the um, you know with those early Afropunk shows. But um, what's really exciting and beautiful about them is that they are they're all very unique in their uh, like not only even not only in the bands that you see, but just like the vibes, the energy, like there, there's some that are like very queer and kind of like electronic. There's some that are like just straight up hardcore. You know, there's some that like uh, have like a like an anime ele element to it. You know, it's like, again, black people aren't a monolith. And when they set out to create um, space for themselves, like it's going to be a reflection of their unique experience and you know the programming that they do is going to be a reflection of that too you know of course so yeah. you know so it's it's really exciting to see like uh that you know to, to experience that that varied degrees of like blackness or black and brownness you know like through all the, these different lenses you know uh, it becomes very clear, like, oh, yeah, like, there are people who would love this festival and not like this one, you know, mm -hmm. um, even though they're coming with the same uh, top line uh, objective of, like, promoting, like, black and brown uh, punk rock, right? Um, not, you know, like, clearly we know this of white punk rock that not all of these bands sound the same. It's, it's so incredibly diverse that you can have like, you know, the hardest hard song and the, and the slowest sappiest, whatever song. And they're all under this umbrella we call punk rock, you know? Um, so, you know, I just look forward to seeing what all of these kids do next and just keep continue to support, you know? Yeah, man, congrats on everything. Like, we didn't even get into loads of the stuff I wanted to, but there's always room for a part two. And, um, yeah, just super excited for all you've got coming up. And, and thanks again for, a, you know, really insightful and an awesome chat, my friend. I enjoyed it. Right on. Yeah, me too. Take care. We'll hopefully see you down the road, man. And, um, yeah, yeah, if I'm ever in L.A., I'll look you up. That's home for you, isn't it? You're L.A.-based these days. Yeah, yeah. Love and life on the sunshine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Let's Let's see if my wi-fi can handle this <laughs> <laughs> it'd be an immediate shutdown bosh yeah yeah man respect really lovely meeting you and um good luck with yeah, the guides have you have you done anything like that before is it going to be your first foray into tour guide activity uh i'm not really guiding much i'm just i just put i made the exhibit but right uh yeah so that's just a different a different job or whatever yeah well you're you're curating the space and giving it yeah exactly giving it the yeah. visual so presentation just on the just on the just on the day that the opening and then our, our party i'll you know i'll be there to kind of like talk about it or whatever but right on. that's not my my thing that's not your mo <laughs> <laughs> we all know our skills right we know our skills it's yeah. best sometimes to stick to them dude yeah. congrats big up and uh yeah have a great day man take care and um right. talk soon thank you james all right yeah, cheers brother bye now. take care